Hey everybody, it's Drew from Sleep With Me, and I'm believe it or not, I'm live here uh, from Golden Gate Park, recorded live, uh, and I've got a little announcement. We're teaming up with a podcast app called Spoke to give you two exclusive episodes. Spoke is a new audio platform made by SiriusXM that creates podcast playlists to help you find new shows to listen to. The Spoke team handpicks the best moments from tons of podcasts and creates playlist clips so you can try a bunch of shows out and find something new to love. Each playlist has its own topic or theme. You could try out the Music Decoded playlist with clips all about unpacking and analyzing music, uh, or Slice of Life, which is all about the crazy or incredible things that happen to everyday people. Also, Spoke has fun, exclusive content from Farrell. And that's why I'm here live at Golden Gate Park. I just concluded uh, recording one of these episodes that's only going to be available exclusively on Spoke. I'm lying here in the grass. Uh, you definitely do not want to miss these special episodes. Download Spoke now. It's free in the App Store or on Google Play. And be sure to check out all of Sleep With Me's exclusive Spoke episodes. You can find them all at Spoke.com slash sleep with me that's spoke.com slash sleep with me check it out uh and i'll see you in golden gate park at stowe lake bye guys i want to tell you about a great sponsor i have bompus they're premium high performance athletic socks and they're so comfortable you're never going to want to take them off and because socks are the number one requested item in homeless shelters for every pair of socks purchased bompus donates one pair of those to those in need almost one million pairs donated to date 15 percent off the first purchase of four or more socks, plus free shipping. So go to getbompus.com slash feral and buy some comfortable socks. Feral Audio. Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. If you haven't listened to the show before, it is just what the title there implies. It's a conversation with me uh, and uh, another individual who usually tends to be a lot more riveting, fascinating, and worldly than I. And uh, hopefully, we learn something and grow, or, or at least I do, because uh, boy, I got a lot to learn. If you like my theme music, by the way, real quick, that's from a band called Les Blanks. Check out more of them. Uh, I, I have to apologize uh, during this interview. Uh, at one point, I get super, super stuffy, and I'm, I probably sound like, you know, uh, uh, an old-timey operator or something. It's, it's, it's really bad. I, I had a sinus infection. I got on antibiotics, and then uh, I was traveling, and I went to Portland where I saw some friends, um, both who've been guests on the show, and I drank a lot of bourbon, and then I kind of just continued drinking bourbon for the next few days. Not like on a bender. I did not go all Bukowski bender, but, you know, each night I would... Uh, Rhonda Hughes uh, turned me on to Basil Hayden bourbon, and uh, I made it a point to really drink in that new bourbon and just live it, just lived some bourbon. Uh, so I totally just killed my antibiotics back came the uh, sinus infection and the creepy cough that made me sound like a guy in a long coat uh, on the fringes of a park. <laughs> uh, there you go. See, there's a sniffle. And uh, now I'm back on antibiotics. And uh, frankly, it's uh, I don't know what this says about me. 
Um, but I, it, it's been one day, and I'm just like, uh, last night I was just like, said to my girlfriend, I was like, man, am I an alcoholic? Because I really want something to drink. Uh, so, I don't know, maybe we should be concerned with me, I don't know. I, but, you know, I like to, have, you know, I, I, uh, I, I spend my day, I've, here's another thing I'm hesitant to, uh, mention, uh, I, uh, I've started writing a book, uh, uh, but I want to mention it because I kind of want to update you about it and let you know where I, I am and sort of to, this will c- keep me, uh, in check and keep me writing. I have been working on it every day, uh, and it's been a lot about about my past. I don't know you people know. Maybe I'll have myself on the show when the book is finished, and I'll interview me about my really horrid uh, and exceptionally violent childhood. Uh, that'd be fun, wouldn't it? Me interviewing me? It's actually something I've thought about doing, because, you know, I have a big ego. Uh, I think I'm fascinating, so fascinating, I should talk to myself for an hour. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, there's that. And, uh, you know, it was also, uh, I also kind of wanted a drink. I was going to take, start my antibiotics on Sunday, uh, but, uh, and not to get too uh, gloomy here, but uh, that's the day we got the news that Mr. Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, passed away, uh, which was uh, really just, you know, I don't usually get affected by celebrity hoodly do, but uh, there, there was something about i will say the art of philip seymour hoffman uh as an actor i think there's a lot of people we see in films and whatnot and uh they're great they're charismatic they have talent but there was something about philip seymour hoffman that went a little deeper i think uh he brought something out of himself that i think translated into like that brought us to feel more than most actors uh i'd have to say there's also was always a great sort of uh, sadness and self-doubt in his uh, performing. And I think with, well, you know, probably as a, but, you know, uh, it really, really bummed me out. And then you throw in the mix of that uh, open letter Dylan Farrow wrote to the uh, New York Times and I guess into the rebuttal of a lot of the uh, arguing or debate about Woody Allen as a, uh, you know, a guy who does lecherous things. And I am a gigantic Woody Allen fan, and I've really bounced around back and forth uh, for a very long time about this. I, I've I've always sided with Woody just because I want to be blind. It's like it's a guy I've known my whole life, sort of. I think I know him. I've watched his films. Uh, anytime I've gotten into dark places, I watch his film films, and it it uh, it uh, makes me. Uh, he's he's he's. Inadvertently talked me out of some dark suicidal thoughts, <laughs> and uh, it's sort of like you don't want to think of the guy doing something horrible. It's like you know, it's like you're f- discovering your uh, beloved grandfather was actually a Nazi. It's not the guy you know, but in reality, we don't know him. And just from my life experiences uh, of dealing with certain things, uh, I, I can't help but think, you know, yipes. I think I think it is the daughter there is what uh, got a good I kind of believe her it's been a little downer this is a downer <laughs> but the good news is we're about to talk with Patrick Holland who is a uh, Australian a critically acclaimed Australian writer uh, wouldn't it be great if I was just interviewing him because he was Australian that that's it I just so stupid I just interview people by their country uh, but he's uh, he's not he's a great writer. He's a 
the, his book, The Merry Smokes Boys, is uh, the end. I talked about this. It is good. He is a he's intellectually he's intimidating. Uh, I, I've I hope I kept up with him. He made some references. I was just like, all right, guy, I can't type at Google that fast. But let's listen to this conversation. It's really great. He's a interesting conversation and a great writer. Please get his books, The Merry Smokes Boys. All right. And yeah, you can throw anything at me. <laughs> be careful. I'll just I'll 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 try to I hire private detectives to really dig up some dirt on you. So <laughs> I'll give it to you here. Don't waste your money. But I typically get questions about everything from beer to TV to. So yeah, don't feel embarrassed. Anything's fine. Uh, you know, I was surprised in uh, one of your interviews that I read. You you referenced uh, a Jim Carrey movie, and uh, I know that it's silly, but I, I you know I read your writing and I've been studying you, and there's all this. It's very, uh, you, you know, your your intellectual uh, prowess intimidates me. <laughs> oh, and then you reference God, him. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I was... well, well, between you and me, Rhonda and I were watching The Bachelor last night. <laughs> Sorry, actually, I've betrayed a secret. Uh, uh, you know, it's funny. But... I know a lot of super smart people, but they just have those guilty indulgences. Yeah, well, that, that's possibly at my level. So I don't know if I fit into that category. But, <laughs> but uh, I. How long are we going for? About fifty minutes. Is that acceptable? cool? Okay. Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, the Merry Smokes Boys, which is, I have to say, the last. The I guess that towards the end, I couldn't read that the pages fast enough. It gets. I mean, I think my heart was right. Like it's an that book. It's really intense at the end. Ah, oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. That's what I attempted to do, but yeah. So it's nice to hear some confirmation. Uh, it's uh, it's quite it's quite <clears throat> thrilling. It's like, I mean, I, 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 my girlfriend kept talking at me, and I was being really rude. I was like, I was like, come on, man! I was like, I'm at the end here. Mm. But um, <laughs> there's such a also, but an intimacy uh, within the the world that you create, and I mean, it, it, that is sort of the world you come from, is it not? A, a little bit. It is, yeah. It is. It's typically it condenses about sort of uh, three three hundred kilometers of highway. And, um, yeah, into one place. The town itself is real. Mary Smokes Creek is a real place. but well, certainly a real creek and a little kind of community around it. But the, the town is basically, in the book, is based on Esk, which is a, another larger town west of Brisbane and Roma, the, the town where I grew up. So, yes, very much. And the, the people are the kinds, of, the kinds of boys that I hung out with as a kid, yeah. And, um, yeah, they're, they're typically, like those people, they're very... They're, they're kind of tough. They're a little bit violent. They're inarticulate, but it doesn't mean they don't have an emotional life. So, yeah, I mean, I I come I, not from such a small place, but I come from a, I would say, the same sort of background. So I think that's another reason I relate to it. And there's yeah, it's interesting because there's characters in your book who are sort of. Uh, restless and want to get out of there or are questioning while they're still there. And then there's those, those people who are content just uh, pretty much living their entire existence there. Mm, definitely. I mean, 
Well, I think they belong to a, almost a period before they're in a transition period. Whereas, you know, in my dad's time, it was thought you'd, you'd grow up in the town that you were born in. You'd get a job there, you'd work there, you'd make a family. Life, if not, you know, they worked hard, but it was simpler in a sense. Whereas suddenly you're presented, you know, with a, a million different choices and the chance to do all these other things that, you know, you only vaguely really know about. But there's more promise on every other horizon. And so, yeah, the boys are caught between that for sure. Yeah, what... Particularly, yeah, particularly Gray. Yeah, he's, uh, it, it's, I mean, uh, you, you, you hope he escapes is how I feel the whole time because there's such a warmth to him and though he comes, he's around sort of a, a reckless group of people, there's, he seems a lot more caring than a lot of the mm. characters. Have. They're all, they're all basically good, I think. Yeah, at least they, they'd like to be good. They're doing what they think is the best thing to do. And yeah, it's his sister really that pulls him back in there all the time. The, the need to, he, he, you know, he, that he doesn't want to leave her alone. Yeah. And uh, that, yeah, that's the basic impetus for the whole thing, really. I mean, the whole thing is sort of, uh, from my perspective anyway, built around that relationship between um, Gray and his sister and a few sort of key scenes of what I really wrote the book around. And like you growing up in sort of that environment, what, how, how did, not that it's like you, I don't know, like in, from my experience, like my group of people was like reading and those kind of, and writing were things like that we were always discouraged, like in a very working class environment, we, mm. we were just always put in our place of like, you don't do that. It, it, it was that sort of the same situation. You know, I was lucky enough in my family, although they didn't really understand it, they they always still supported it. So, you know, to a degree, I mean, they didn't, particularly in the early days, I think they kind of thought, what the hell is he doing? He's not making any money. He's going to, you know, be in trouble shortly. But um, they at least supported, whereas you're right, there is a kind of, uh, I don't know what it's exactly what it's like here, but in some parts of Australia, there is some hostility to anyone who would presume to be any kind of artist or, and it's even considered very effeminate in places. Like men work, and if they want, women can write books or, or paint a picture. But <laughs> so there's that to go up against as well. But I mean, it, as I say, you know, it would always surprise you. you. You'd get some guy who, you know, you'd just seen punching someone's lights out in a pub or something, go over to his house, and you'd just see a book of Hemingway's short stories, and you'd think, how the hell did that get here? And you know, they. they uh, they they they'd be reaching for something a lot of the time. I mean, it's it's not as though, like I said, it's not as though they they didn't have any emotional life. It was just particularly for the men, something that you just didn't talk about. I mean, no one would talk about anything seriously. It has a dark side too. In that uh, out there, particularly, there is a very high suicide rate amongst men. And you know, no doubt, part of that is just the culture of if you've got a problem. If it's a health problem, if it's a mental problem, an emotional one, you keep it to yourself. You don't tell anyone. And technically, I guess it was one of the challenges in the book to try and say things without any of the characters actually directly hitting on them. <clears throat> Particularly, you know, with the relationship with Gray, Eccleston and Irene, which is something... It, it, 
it's a kind of a, I guess, an unorthodox love triangle in a way, but none of them ever really speak about it. So that was one of the challenges, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because that does that sort of attitude, uh, at least in the environment I grew up, was very prevalent. Like, you don't cry, you don't share your emotions, and then all that turns mm. into is a lot of alcoholism and punching one another. <laughs> sure, yeah. Well, you know, it, it can do. It, it, yeah, and I, I've heard that from a few different people who have read the book here, particularly... I had friends of mine from the States, they came to the, uh, the launch in Australia and they read it and a, a few of them independently came to me and said, this is just like where I grew up, which is, it's interesting, yeah. But like you say, I mean, you don't cry, you don't, actually one of the reasons why, although it's big now, soccer was a really hard sell in the beginning in Australia because when you see a grown man rolling around in front of his, you know, quote, enemy or adversary at least, showing pain like the men could not understand that at all you know if you got hit you had to pretend you weren't hurt but rather than the opposite so uh, yeah that that there's certainly a culture of that out there that's interesting. That I think speaks volumes because quite frankly I would while I was reading the book I would often forget that it was based in Australia until some specific reference came by because I was like it it related very much, I think, it, in a lot of ways, my own my own personal life, which I guess <laughs> a lot of great writing should do, right? Mm -hmm. mm. Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I think Borg has said, what interests one man interests no one. I mean, if you're not going to break out of your own sort of personal, you know, desires and idiosyncrasies, you, you know, you, you're never going to translate. No, hopefully the story is even though it's a bit unusual, in some sense, universal. I think all decent stories have to be universal. But, um, yeah. And, it's in, and then it's actually, I mean, it's a new book to the States, though, but it's, it's not actually your most recent book. Is that correct? No, that's right. The most recent one is called The Darkest Little Room. It's um, a novel set in Saigon. Particularly, yeah, it has something to do with this. Uh, human trafficking, but it particularly concerns a journalist and uh, uh, a, a prostitute who he thinks may be a girl from his past. And uh, she's also murdered, right? Or is that well, it's no, it's um, <laughs> it's slightly more complicated than that. Actually, no. In in fact, I can say definitely no. In this case. But it's, there is a pattern there. I mean, in, in so many of the things that I write, there's something or someone innocent and good. And for some reason, the people around her, and it's usually a man, fails to protect her. And that pattern repeats again and again in my stuff. So it's, I mean, I don't think anyone reading it would, would notice too many similarities, first of all, with the Mary Smokes boys, other than kind of a minimalist style, but, and possibly even more so. But yeah, there is, there is that pattern to a lot of what I write. I mean, the Mary Smokes boys was originally, you know, part of the impetus was, you know, real events. I mean, as a writer, you don't you you have to be careful about trying to own someone else's tragedy. But there was a, a, a one of my sister's best friends was murdered in a similar way to the way Irene is is murdered in the book. And um, you know, inevitably, an event like that stays with you. It was a tremendous event for the town. But I guess one of the the questions, you know, you always approach a novel with questions in mind. 
And um, one of the questions was why, when there were people around her that presumably loved her, why was in you know a crucial moment did they fail to protect her? Why was she left alone? So yeah, I guess I, I played on that question to some degree because you know, and without an answer to it. Yeah, it's it's interesting how many people like you say you have that theme, and it's like it clearly comes. I mean, does it? Would you attribute it to that one moment, or is there a series of sort of like things you're searching for within that theme? Mm. I mean, there's you know, everyone to some degree fails personally to protect things. I mean, you live live life long enough, you're gonna you, you're gonna have failures like that, and um, you know, whenever you whenever you let someone down or hurt someone, it's um, it's it's, tra- it's traumatic. So. It's that event certainly weighed in, but I, I wouldn't say that's the one overriding event that fuels everything. No, it's a it's a number of things. I mean, it's like anything that the genesis of any work, and particularly a novel, is so complex. It's, it's hard to to pinpoint it to a cause, but certainly, I typically I'll have some some kind of moral question that I, I'm concerned with, but and also a kind of an aesthetic question as well. Like, can I write? Can I describe this using this language, or how will I have to change the language, for example, to to make characters speak who don't typically speak, or to write a to write a landscape in a in a kind of way that I hadn't seen a landscape written before. For example, you mentioned the landscape earlier, and and what you'd expected of Australian writing and landscape, and there is that tradition. Patrick White called it dun-coloured realism. There are certain kind of tropes that Australian writers will roll out, like the shearer, the drover, the you know the desert, and, and it's written in a particular way, and it never seemed to be the landscape that I grew up in. And so I wanted to. Uh, I can remember reading Jack Kerouac on a bus, and I and I think he was writing about, might have been writing about Mexico or the plain plainlands at the time, and I thought that's more like where I grew up. And so I. Yeah, I wanted to do. In that sense, I have had an aesthetic rationale as well. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> it was that because I noticed you also were American writers a big influence on you. Because I noticed in, in one thing I read that you uh, Hemingway, you claim, was a big influence. Yeah, massive. I mean, my three big writers are probably Hemingway, Graham Greene, and Kipling. Also, um, you know, Barry Lopez. Uh, there's a writer from England, Juliana Horatio Ewing, who is, is fairly hard to come by now, but she was an influence on Kipling. She also, and, and Emily Bronte as well, there's a few, but but American writers to a, to a large degree. I mean, as I've, I've told a couple of people here, they're kind of the standard bearers now in Australia for quality. So if if someone likes your book, you'll typically be compared to one American writer or another. But um, I'm always, you know, and that does happen, but I'm always chuffed if it's Hemingway because that is, you know, he is a real influence. I mean, since I was a teenager, I was enamored with him. And, uh, you know, I, st- I still write about him today. I've just finished uh, writing an honors thesis where I, I spoke about him and uh, a sort of unwitting connection to Japanese writers of the same period. Yeah, so he's a, a massive influence. What about him uh, spoke to you or influenced you? Well, I, I guess first of all, it just the fact that he could translate experience so well. I mean, not that, so his books didn't seem like, you know, 
And this is the fault of a lot of books that I find, you know, today that is particularly that appear on university lists and that they're kind of they're kind of pills full of like bites of information. They're didactic in a sense or they're issue books. They want to persuade you of something. Whereas Hemingway's books seem to me an experience. Not something that you would leave having gained knowledge, but having gained an experience. You know, it sounds like a cliche to say it lives, but it really did feel like you lived in, you know, so Hemingway himself, I think, said that people would always come up to him and like slap him on the back as though they were great friends. But it does feel like once you've read The Sun Also Rises that, you know, you, you could walk into that group, even though they're not particularly friendly all the time, but sort of and fit in because they're your friends too. I mean, just the way he could transcribe life. And, and you know, often he had a tragic vision, but it seemed so vital and so energetic. But that was the first thing that drew him me to him and then the possibilities you know in his prose that, that you know the iceberg theory where i think he says one ninth or one tenth of it is above the ground uh, above the water the rest is is hidden that you know that he could write depth by only sort of painting surface and and you would feel the rest of its presence like that that kind of thing as a young writer really attracted me and i mean still today i'm interested in all kinds of minimalist writing and the use of generative silence in work. So, yeah, he's a, a massive influence. Which is uh, <clears throat> something you used with uh, a lot with Mary Spokesboys. Sure. Yeah, it's... it's Because I don't know anything about Japanese writing, so I couldn't I couldn't pick up on, on that influence. Or, mm-hmm. uh, who, mm. who were some Japanese writers that, say, if you were one was going to go look for them, Sure. I mean, the, the really obvious one for me, I guess, I, I didn't mention him before, is Yasunari Kawabata. He, although they have very different subject matter, like Kawabata typically writes about or geishas and, you know, sort of lonely businessmen out on holiday meeting meeting women. They have these sort of very brief, unconsummated affairs. and But uh, his style is very, very similar to Hemingway's. He, Hemingway would say he, he forged his style in the newspaper game, like having to strip things down all the time. Uh, Kawabata was influenced by, you know, medieval Japanese aesthetics. Like, uh, you, and you will see those, they're, they're becoming popular today in Western art as well, like Shibui, which is just the idealization of anything really simple and stripped down. Uh, Yugen, the idealization of anything that's dark. So the beauty of darkness, basically. Or, and the one I particularly wrote about is Ma, and that aesthetic ideal talks about silence and interval. And uh, it's been picked up, actually, by Japanese writers now who are writing what they call ambient literature. Some of that is intended to actually put people to sleep. That's the intention? <laughs> yes. Yeah, most certainly. I could, I could say and, uh, them and they could read my stuff. <laughs> well, it could be a big hit there because, I mean, mood regulation. Yeah, and uh, there's a particular academic, Paul Roquet, who ascribes this to uh, mood regulation, the desire, particularly after the Kobe earthquakes and, you know, the sarafan gas attacks in the underground and the, the Japanese wanted some sense of being able to control their moods uh, better than they had because there was a sense of panic around the place and um, these Iyashi products started to appear everywhere, the mood regulating products and ambient literature comes out of that, at least according to Roquet. And um, 
Yeah, and one particular novel, I mean, Yuki Kurita's uh, Hotel Mole is about, it's it's about uh, basically a hotel. Just a lady goes around making up beds and there's some vague mysteries around the hotel, but it really focuses on the sense of the hotel, the light in there, the, the, the nature of the sleep that it provides. So, yeah, and I mean, a book like that uses generative silence too in a, in a very particular way, but you know, in in the Merry Smokes Boys, it uses, I guess, generative silence in the sense that the relationship between Gray and Irene, particularly, is never is never directly spoken about, and that silence, I think, leaves leaves um, room for the reader to to come to work on their own terms, but also it it leaves a, a, a sort of a potentiality about the whole thing. Not that absolutely anything's true, but like I don't like to have the final word on some of these things myself. I mean, I've I've been in places in readings, and and people will be fishing for that final word, and they'll say, for example, Gray, uh, Irene sometimes seems to display a kind of supernatural uh, resemblance to her mother, and they'll tell me what's going on there. Like, is it is it supposed to be her reincarnated? And I have to say, I don't know. I, and I really don't know. I have no final word on that. I just, I just wrote it in in the sense that pleased me at the time, and I, I like to keep those silences there that I felt at least, in some sense, were working. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I could, I because mean, I, there was definitely questions I was having while I was reading it about their relationship, and uh, mm. and it, it's interesting that because then it just that does you bring a little bit of your own into it. But I, I feel like as I, maybe I don't know. It seems more of an American thing. Is like we want uh, those hard answers and absolutes. I think it like you see that, and sometimes mm. in cinema, when people, when something's left open ended, people in the United States get, <clears throat> excuse me, get really upset about that because they want that 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 solid. It ends, and this is what happened, and this is why. And uh, mm. I, I find well, it's not too dissimilar in Australia either. You know, it's. Uh, I mean, we admire it when it comes from Japan and Europe, but we're we're mistrusting of our own stuff. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, so I, yeah, I understand what you mean. Yeah, we we operate on a similar preset. Yeah, we we'd prefer answers. Yeah, uh, but it's changing. I mean, you know, as more and more sort of art, but particularly popular art like film and some popular novels come in from East Asia and from from Europe, then that does change to some degree. I mean, there's some mar absolutely marvellous writing in Australia. It doesn't typically be the stuff you read here, though. Our, our bigger writers that you get here, are, I mean, you know, they're good. They're, they're, um, they're consummate professionals, but th there's some really brilliant stuff that doesn't seem to make it out. Does, uh, yeah, this is, and this is your first time to the States, isn't it? It is, yes. This is my first trip, yeah. When you had, like, did you have any preconceived notions of... Because I feel like people have a definite image of Americans, and I have to say, Certainly. a lot of it's correct. <laughs> so a lot of us are... Well, you know, I'm so, <laughs> that's funny, because now, admittedly, I'm in Portland, so some people have told me Portland's not America. That's but, <laughs> but um, yes, you're right. There is an image that that gets sent overseas and it's not particularly positive a lot of the time. 
But um, I've got to say, it's, I certainly don't see any evidence of it here. The people here are lovely. They're very quiet. They're respectful. <laughs> there's, there's craft beer everywhere. As I tell everyone, the, the road, the people on the road just amazing. Here in Portland, if you even look like you might be going to cross, they'll pull up and stop just in case you do. Like in Australia, you'd get flattened if you, if you decided to just step out onto the road. Everyone seems extremely gracious. And yeah, the landscape is is well looked after here. It's completely counter to that sort of negative popular image that gets sent overseas, you know, by some of the worst TV shows. (laughs) Portland definitely is a bit more creative and uh, communal than a lot of, Mm. but it's uh, like I'm even Seattle. Mm. Yeah, Seattle's great. I was just actually in both of those towns. But I was curious, because mm. I feel like, and, and maybe I'm just misinterpreting because I have a very limited knowledge of, like, Australian writing and what you're saying about Japanese writers, and I I feel like a lot of the mainstream publishing in this country would not embrace those things. I, I've talked to other writers about this as well. It's like, I don't, there's a lot of... Uh, yes, flip. I do know what you mean. <laughs> Yes, I do. And I mean, they have, you know, obviously they have, they, 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 I mean, it's, look, it's no revelation to say they're more concerned with profits than with, you know, maintaining respectable literary publishing houses. I mean, it, it, it amazes me that there aren't more editors in the big publishing houses who want to strike out and make a name for themselves. Like, you know, be the Maxwell Perkins or something of their generation, say, well, I discovered these four. They seem happy enough with doing a cookbook by a footballer and then, you know, uh, a a vampire romance. And I guess it's the remit that they're given, and it's a bit sad because there really is some interesting stuff. I mean, I'm... uh, Do you know know Poe Ballantyne? Yes, I interviewed Poe, and I'm a huge fan of Poe's. Okay, well, I just picked up here. I'm at Rhonda's now at Hawthorne Press, and I just picked up things I like about America. I mean, it's amazing. It's hilarious. So, yeah, I guess a similar thing happens in Australia. Some of your best stuff we're not getting over there so well either. But, yeah, it is a bit sad the way that the big presses are going. But who knows? They might cannibalize themselves in a way. Like, I can imagine a day when people just have enough of reading the same thing again and again, and they go looking with a sort of renewed spirit of, uh, you know, discovery. I feel that way about most of uh, the creator. Like, I feel that about film. I feel that about books. And uh, I mm. think there's some safe... Uh, it seems like there's a lot more interesting things going on in television than there is in cinema. Like, I know you watched For True sure. Detective the other... And, like, True Detective yeah. is a pretty un... I mean, it's very slow. It's it's very yeah. different. See, I lo- yeah, I love that sort of ambient, moody quality that it has. There's, there's a lot of implied violence. It's around the edges. You see it after it happens or it's threatened, but it's mostly mood, and I love it. It's, I think it's really compelling, that show. Yeah, I... But, yeah, you're... Mm. Does it... Sorry? Oh, I was, I was just I was going to say that I've had to watch every episode twice just because I, I can't get it out of my goddamn head. <laughs> it's like... Me too. It's interesting how McConaughey started out as like a romantic buffoon, and now he, he's brilliant in that. Yeah, it's it's he was he drove me insane for a while. I was just like, like it was just like God, you make so much garbage, and then it's like suddenly mm. he just started playing really crazy people, and it's 
Mm. And it's it's great. <coughs> yeah. But yeah, you're right. There is a lot going on in television. And film as well, I think, is probably slightly just going ahead of literature. At the moment. It's a little more adventurous. Particularly the film. I mean, and even the film that's coming out of here. I mean, you know, Wes Anderson type stuff. That gets mainstream play in Australia. I mean, it didn't. The early stuff didn't. But <laughs> the more recent stuff does. Of course, it helps if you've got Bill Murray and Owen Wilson on the cast list. But, um, yeah, and... I mean, film coming out of Europe, like The Great Beauty, that kind of thing, is, is getting good play in Australia, and that can only, you know, influence literary culture eventually to be a little more adventurous. I, yeah, I hope so. It's like, to go back to what you said, Poe Valentine, like, to me, is one of the best living writers in the United States, and I just can't understand... Mm. I just can't understand why everybody doesn't know that, like, why he is not up there with, like, a Bukowski and a Kerouac, and, and I, it frust- mm. frustrates me in general for uh, writers of just, like, how many more mm. are there of him that are brilliant and just can't get the goddamn time of day? Well, my, my publisher just in Australia just picked up um, his most recent book, um, On the Howling Plains of Nowhere. Oh, that's a great book. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, he's he's broke into Australia now. <laughs> but yeah, I agree. I mean, I was reading um, things I like about America last night, and it struck me you know, a similar kind of thing to Dennis Johnson, um, Jesus' son, which was enormous. But yeah, yeah, I mean, he's a a very very good writer. In fact, I just I'll share with you one bit I read out of out of his book this morning. Um, He's with a girl, the first girl he's ever had, and uh, an old boyfriend shows up. The girl says, Lance is a method actor, like Al Pacino. Oh? Yeah, he just did a margarine commercial. (laughs) That's that's priceless. How deep would you have to go back into your psyche to pull up an experience with margarine? (laughs) But it's full of that stuff. So, yeah, I definitely agree. He's marvellous. Yeah, it's... uh, It's... Yeah, I don't. I, it's. I just. Uh, I, I often wonder uh, how many great works of art go unseen in general in the world, and then I get to. Well, there's. Yeah. Well, there's some good stuff in Australia. I mean, if anyone is interested in Australian literature, Brian Castro is very, very good, and Gerald Manane, who wrote a book called The Plains, which is immensely influential in Australian writing, but it's also big in Sweden apparently, but not here. So that's one to look out for as well. It's it's interesting how people can find uh, niches in the other parts of the world, and, and mm. I mean, there's like a number of comedians in the United States that can walk into a busy restaurant and nobody knows who the hell they are, and then they can't walk in, walk around in Australia or England, and it's, it's like yes, that's right, yeah, it, it, yeah, definitely. It's, it makes me question our uh, our tastes here in this country a little bit. Well, it goes the same way, too. I think the Flight of the Concords guys are bigger here than they are at home. That's really interesting. Mind you, they rip the piss out of Australia constantly, so that's not surprising. (laughs) (laughs) uh, As part of their remit overseas, I think they're blacking our name. (laughs) Hey, if I could make a great living making fun of the United States, I will jump on board. (laughs) They do. They do, well, particularly giving their limited acting ability. I mean, they have the, they're good at the music, though. I, I'm not very well versed in that, but uh, 
But I also wanted to talk. Mm. To you, you, I saw something that you. Uh, anytime you get an idea, you go for a walk, which I think was, uh, which is I think, I I do a lot of walking. I I live in the worst city for it, but, uh, mm. and I also I couldn't help but wonder if that is was in some way, and maybe I'm looking too deeply connected to uh because you you definitely spend a lot of time in Asia, uh. And I'm just aware of, like, there's walking meditation in cer certain sects of Buddhism and stuff, and I, I didn't know if there was any sort of connection mm. to that at all. Not deliberately. But, I mean, only that, you know, it stills your mind, basically. Uh, you, you know, when you've looked at a work for too long, you end up not being able to see it at all. You don't know what's right and what's wrong. It's only when you disengage with it. But, you know, you can use that other part of your brain, the subconscious, the, the irrational part will be more likely to give you answers. I remember Graham Greene saying that whenever he had an insoluble problem in a novel, he'd make sure it was the last thing he slept, uh, thought about when he went to bed, and then he'd just go to sleep. He wouldn't try and solve it, and he said in the morning he'd always have the answer. But there's something about sort of turning off, and in fact, it does relate to that aesthetic principle I spoke about earlier, Ma, just the, the power of sort of disengagement of, of interval. Of, uh, of silence. You, you turn your brain off to a certain extent and wait for things to come to you rather than trying to get the pick and shovel out and forge answers. <laughs> so yeah, and that's part of it. I mean, one of the times, I mean, I do walk but also run and, and cycle a lot. And I mean, when your body is in pain, your mind can't but just think about the fact that you're in so much pain. And in that sense, it, it a rational part of you turns off and you stop thinking for a while, even if it's for, you know, five, ten minutes about the work that you've been doing that day and it gives it a chance to sort of remake itself, I think, in your unconscious. And that's a, a useful tool. Yeah. And how did you become so fascinated with it? Because you, you've lived in China, Japan. Am I missing anything? There was a couple others, or am I nuts? I've lived particularly in Vietnam, but also China and Japan. I visited a lot. I wouldn't say I lived there, but I've I've visited uh, a few times and travelled around a bit. But uh, yeah, it's in one sense it's kind of an obvious thing to do in Australia because we're in the region, so we have you know tremendous links. I mean, every kid in school now learns one of the Asian languages. Um, yeah, so it, in a sense, it's an obvious thing to do, but also because it seemed like, um, you know, the, the most foreign cultures I could visit were right on the doorstep, so why not go and have a look? So I first lived in China when I was 24, and I, I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to study, first in Qingdao and then in Beijing. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, very, very... Uh, beneficial I guess any experience is beneficial but those are the experiences that I've had and they do end up showing up in my writing inevitably yeah and you because I saw the one tale of you, you ending up homeless in Kyoto was it it's like uh, Kyoto yeah I just, I, I just... Uh, homeless to a degree we should qualify that I just I just didn't have a hotel but uh, <laughs> yeah but it, it certainly felt like it that night. But basically, I travel by the seat of my pants. Typically, anywhere I go, I don't book anything. I just see what happens, which always had worked until that point. And I, I, I didn't plan anything, and I just happened to luck, well, have terrible luck and land there on the most popular 
Well, and on the weekend, I think it's called um, my Japanese is great. It's basically the the festival of the dead, and uh, you know, it's it's when people honour their ancestors, and everyone gravitates to Kyoto, and there was absolutely nothing available. I mean, I tried four star hotels, I tried like rooms in hostels, there was nothing at all, and so I just had to ride around on the trains all night. And it was, at the time, sort of, I went there thinking, well, this is the story I'm here for, and this this uh, is preventing me from writing that story. And then in the end, I got a you know the lead essay of a book out of it. So you never know where your stories will come from. How how many days did you have to sleep on the train? Mm, just two, I think. Oh, I see. It was, it was a little while ago. No, no, it was only two nights. For, yeah. for a neurotic guy like me, not having a place to stay would drive me insane. Me too. It's often said to me, people would say, oh, you're such a great traveler. I'm not. <laughs> I mean, I I drag myself out of wherever I am. Wherever I am is where I'm happiest, and I don't want to shift. But I know I have to, so I'll drag myself out. And I'm like you. I, I'm tremendously anxious about it all. Particularly, I mean, I, I've ended up in some places where someone of my temperament should never be, like the Gobi Desert and that. And at the time, I'm loathing it, but I come back with a story. And again, it sounds like I'm an adventurer, but I'm certainly not. Yeah, it's, the, the older I get, too, the, I don't know, like I was in San Francisco a couple of weeks ago, and I was just like, this place is too fucking busy. <laughs> just like, I'm like, there's too many people here. Like, Portland is ideal. Yeah. Like, something that's just, I don't, I don't know, I can't, I, I can't, I can't take it as I get older. Mm. Well, I mean, I spend a lot of time in Saigon. It's it's busy there. It's a, a huge city, but it's also it feels very homely to me now. So I've kind of got little places around the world where I'm happy to go that feel like home, but I don't often venture out of those. So actually, coming to America is a was a big deal for me, much bigger deal than going to China. So. It's, uh... I've heard nothing but great things about Vietnam, like uh, especially for uh, writers, because it's so mm. it's just so inexpensive to live there. It is, and the lifestyle is great there too. I mean, it's you know the weather; it's a bit too hot, but you know you can always handle heat. Whereas a bit too cold just closes you down. But yeah, it's it's wonderful. I mean, it's a bit like Graham Greene said at the start of the Quiet American: anything you're looking for here, you'll find there. And um, it's it's really a, a, you know I often think it, it's it's life raw it's really uncut if you if you're a really good person you get the opportunity to be a saint and if you're bad you get the opportunity to be a demon I mean there's no sort of pr- protective glass it's it's really intense I mean again that's one of the things that Green said in the start of that novel. I think he said, I don't know why I fell in love with Vietnam, perhaps, but everything here is so intense. And uh, you, uh, that's perfectly put. It really is. It's it's like a strong, strong dose of life every day, wherever you go. Yeah. Is it still like, is there still a, a very seamy side there where people could get in some serious trouble? Of course. Yeah. I mean, there is. Sometimes you'll see like, particularly Australian, but occasionally American. You'll see kids going there like after they've graduated school. Their parents have obviously given them some money to go to, as particularly young men, go on holiday to Vietnam. You see these bands of like 19-year-old kids in the tourist district. You think this is the most dangerous place you could have sent these guys with money. (laughs) 
you can get into a hell of a lot of trouble really fast. But um, so there, there certainly is a seedy side. But I mean, there's every side. Oh, a city of that many people too. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't want to stereotype it. There's there's um, you know, wonderful artists, wonderful poets. There's brilliant uh, restaurateurs. There's architects. I mean, there's everything. It's, yeah, and you know, working class, poor. I mean, there's still the effects of war there are still visible on the streets, um, particularly, you know, the effects of Agent Orange. So there's a certain tragedy that hangs around the place, but there's such a resilience to those people and energy, you know, about the place, particularly in Saigon. There's just this massive energy in the city. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it's very uh, compelling. And, yeah, are they, how are they towards Americans if, if like, because of... I was talking to... A, well, I was talking to an American guy the other day while in Saigon, and he was surprised. He said they just don't seem to feel animosity. And it's true. Given, I mean, you go to the, the Museum of um, basically war atrocities in Saigon, and the things you see just turn your stomach. I mean, absolutely horrendous. And I know everyone who walks now, Australia participated in that war too. You walk out of there and you just want to crumble and say sorry to someone. And um, But, you know, the Vietnamese, they take every person on their merits. I've never seen anything different. I've never met anyone who has uh, bears a grudge. And, I mean, I know people who have picked their families out of the, the woods bit by bit from, you know, here's Uncle, you know, here's Uncle Joe's arm, here's his, you know, here's his foot trunk, because burial is such an important thing in, in Vietnam. It's, you know, you have to be buried in the proper way. So your spirit doesn't wander the earth, you know, lost. And uh, still, there is no, like, no really deep-seated animosity that you would expect. And it's, yeah, it's quite marvellous to see. That's really intense. That's... Because <clears throat> mm. Western culture holds such a grudge about everything. <laughs> exactly. I mean, exactly. I know I've got... You know, dear friends in Australia, for example, who teach Japanese, and she will still get people who come to her uh, parents will have a letter. My child will, uh, does not have to study Japanese. They have to get a letter from their parents to get out of it <coughs> because uh, his grandfather was a Second World War vet. I mean, that sounds absolutely absurd, but it's, it still happens. And, uh, yeah... So we, like you, can can at times really bear a grudge. But uh, you know, but the, I have noticed that there's a difference in the way that the Vietnamese and the, the Japanese um, look at war. It seems like, to a certain degree, that in in Japan, they put it to the edge of their mind. They don't want to think about it, and that that gives them. And I can understand that, and that allows them to move forward. In Vietnam, they kind of face it full on. They know exactly what happened. They know how it went down. They acknowledge it. I mean, there could be an, uh, an element of guilt there too in the Japanese case. But, but um, yeah, they, they know exactly what happened. It's not as though they're in the dark and they still come out of it, um, you know, with all sort of without being twisted, without being jaded. And, yeah, it's, it's quite amazing. And uh, the darkest little room, which is that, is it, uh, that's also being uh, made a film, correct? 
Yes, in the early stages, yeah. Uh, is that, cause, uh, how does that feel as a writer to have something of yours translated into a film? Well, it's marvellous. I mean, you know, they're writing the script now and uh, doing location stuff and that. And um, originally, I think I was a co-script writer until they realised I was no good at it. But so now I, I just kind of check over the script, make sure it looks good. But uh, yeah, it's amazing because you see someone else interpreting your work. And so many times in the process, I think, damn it, I should have done it like that. Very rarely do I think I did it better in the book, which could be a sign. But, um, but, but in fact, I guess they have to write a particular way to condense what's a, you know, a reasonably large book into, um, into an hour and a half or an hour and 45 minutes of cinema. So the, the way they can condense stuff and rearrange it so it's faster, it was quite amazing for me. Yeah, that's, it, it, excuse me, I keep getting a little congested. Uh, yeah, it's interesting because I talked with Poe about and it. It seems like that's a lot of the friends I have who've written books and been published. The first question that always follows is, oh, are they going to make it a movie? Which is, uh, it's a great compliment that somebody would want to do so, but it it's, it, to me, it's also insulting because it's like, that's know. the ultimate end of a book. Like that's yeah. what you would write for. In a sense, I can understand where they what they mean because that's where you get a real paycheck. Uh, and so you know, if if a movie does well, depending on if you had a cut of the the profits or, you know, if you got paid well enough for the for the option in the beginning, but. Um, yeah, it is. It is a bit, a bit sad that people think that way. Possibly, if if literary culture was a little more adventurous, they wouldn't have to see it in film. Yeah. But, oh. I've heard. Uh, I can't think of his name. The guy who wrote Jurassic Park, but he said he specifically writes his books to be made into films, which I guess is fine. <laughs> but, but it's also well. If it, I dare say one of his main objectives is to make a lot of money, and in that case, you know, he'd be a fool not to. But, yeah, he's successful in that sense at least. I mean, you could always say, oh, you write silly books about dinosaurs, but then, you know, he's probably rolling past me in an Audi and I'm riding a bike. So, um, you know, it, I'm sure it, it has its consolations. For sure. Oh, I have no... Mm. I, I wish somebody would say, want something of mine into a movie, I'd be thrilled. But... Mm. Yeah, and the and the darkest little room is going to be coming out in the United States soon as well, isn't it? Uh well, I, look, if it does, it'll it'll come out hopefully with Hawthorne, yeah. But we'll see. It's it's still coming. I think uh, Rhonda's going to read it shortly. I think so. Yeah. I, I, I hope. So. I, I'm act from what I've read about the book. I would, uh, I would be thrilled to to read it because it seems pretty great. Oh, wonderful. Well, tell Rhonda that. <laughs> I, I think she's going to listen to this tomorrow, so hopefully hopefully she Oh, okay. Okay. Great. <laughs> and, uh, and there's a, a – it's interesting because I used to ask uh, – not ask, but it would always come up of like which books were influential. But uh, Poe actually put it out. He's like, it's not what books were influential. He's like, it's what books I thought really uh, worked. Uh, mm. Worked and, and – which I thought was mm. an interesting uh, uh, way of of uh, yes of looking as a pra- yeah well as a practitioner you definitely you have an idea of what you want to do 
And one of the things you're doing when you're reading is looking for people who have done something like it and see how they've successfully done it. And, you know, inevitably you pinch techniques. So, yeah, uh, I'd certainly agree with that. You're looking for books that, not necessarily even the books that you love, like if you're writing a particular book, you'd be, yeah, looking for exactly people who have been successful at a particular thing and trying to do that too. But like, if you're asking about the Mary Smokes boys, if um, which ones weighed in on that? Certainly, Wuthering Heights, which was like probably the first book that I ever loved. I mean, that 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 is a book that's influential on that. A, a, a film that's influential on a lot of stuff that I do is Sujo River, a Chinese film. <laughs> uh, I can see traces of that in the Mary Smokes boys, and in. Um, the Darkest Little Room. There's a short story by Juliana Horatio Ewing called Dandelion Clock, which is also influential on on the Mary Smokes voice. But yeah, there's a few. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you said that a movie is influenced because you never, or I've never thought of that. I mean, I've been influenced by uh, music and, 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 and for almost everything I've done. But it's uh, films and being mm. influencing literature is kind of an interesting. I just never heard mm. anyone say that before. <laughs> well, C yeah, C.J. Rivers is an amazing film, but um, particularly in fact, you mentioned music. I mean, on the Merry Smokes Boys, the music of Arvo Pett. I was listening to that constantly in writing, particularly like the early stuff, like Feralina. Uh, that is as big an influence on that book as anything else. That piece of music. I mean, it's kind of that atmosphere, the spirit of that piece, I was trying to get at every single stop. There's more obscure influences that I can think of all the time now when you you put your mind to it. Like, there's a scene at a service station, what you'd call a gas station. That was very much influenced by a song by a Canadian band called the Rio Statics. They're broken up now, but I love them as a kid. I don't even think they were big in Canada, but a friend gave me some of their CDs and I was hooked. There's a song by um, the Rio Statics, lead singer Martin Tielli, and it was called Self Serve Gas Station. And uh, I basically used that to at least help write that scene. So, but yeah, I've opaired particularly as far as music goes. Do you, do you listen to music as you write? Or... Oh, often, yeah, almost all the time. Very rarely will I not have some music going. It's typically. Um, you know, some ambient stuff like Brian Eno, John Broadus, William Basinski, but also uh, some some Baroque classical like Bach, but mainly it's um, contemporary classical stuff from Eastern Europe like Arvo Pett, Gia Cancelli, Petrus Vasques, that kind of stuff that for some reason really inspires me. Great. Uh, and if... Uh, just to wrap it up, is there? Uh, you have a website, and uh, are you on Twitter or any of those? Uh, yeah, I've got. A, I, I am. Yeah, I've got. I'm not on Facebook, but I've got a Twitter account. I think it's at P Holland Writer or at Patrick Holland Writer, one of those two. And uh, anyway, you'd find it on my website. It's uh, the W's dot Patrick Holland dot com dot au. Great. Uh, and you can find my stuff on there. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time out to uh, speak with us, or me. Thank you, Matt. I guess the listeners. <laughs> well, thank you, Matt. It's a real pleasure. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you.
much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, please do me a favor and donate some money. Uh, if you can, go to my page there at feralaudio.com and donate some money. If you can't, I know it's tough times. Uh, just buy some stuff through my Amazon link. And, uh, you know, I get a little kickback of that. That helps. Uh, write a review on iTunes and uh, follow me on Twitter, Matt underscore Dwyer at Twitter. And uh, email me, Conversations with Dwyer. I got an email from France this week, and it really meant a great deal to me. Thank you very much, everybody.
branch of the United States government, it is the mission of the National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.